You're listening to a Stranger Cast at thestranger.com. Hey, it's Wednesday, March 13th, and I'm Eli Sanders, and this is Blabbermouth, the Stranger podcast in which we talk about what's going on this week. This week, Nancy Pelosi is talking about how Trump is just not worth impeaching. What does Dan impeach the motherfucker already savage say about that? We'll find out. Also, the college admissions scandal. We will get into it with Rich Smith. And then Elizabeth Warren's plan to break up big tech. Chase Burns tells us what it's all about. Finally, Jasmine Keimig on Leaving Neverland, the Michael Jackson documentary that is making everyone wonder whether they should ever listen to Michael Jackson again. But first, Dan Savage on Nancy Pelosi. Dan Savage, hello. Hey. Rich Smith, hello. Hi, Eli. So, uh, Dan, I don't know if you heard this, but Nancy Pelosi has some things to say about ITMFA. She is not into impeaching the motherfucker already or even soon. She geniusly, though, said he's not worth it, which is going to shred Donald (laughs) Trump's insecurities. A woman has said he's not worthy of something and then he's going to want that something. So Donald Trump is going to do even more crimes, more impeachable offenses until he becomes, in Nancy's eyes, worthy of impeachment. Um, So, yeah, apparently we sent her all those lovely, suitable for cable television, ITMFA flag lapel pins for nothing. They were delivered to Nancy Pelosi's office, including actually they're delivered to every sitting member uh, of the Congress's office, left and right, Dem and R and I for Bernie. Um, but to no avail uh, thus far. But there are other Democratic members of the House who are introducing articles of impeachment. And I want to say, I heard from a lot of people um, that, uh, of course, we shouldn't impeach him. Of course, Nancy's right because he's not going to get convicted in the Senate. Impeachment is how you censor a president. Uh, even if you're not going to convict in the Senate where the trial after the impeachment, impeachment is like an indictment and the trials in the Senate, mm-hmm. even if he doesn't get uh, removed from office, Think of what the trial could unearth. Think of the spot the trial would put Republican senators on if they continue to run interference for him. We don't know what would come out as a result of the impeachment during the trial. The trial could be what convinces wavering Republican senators to vote to impeach, uh, to vote to convict and, and remove from office. And so even if we don't think we can get a conviction in the Senate, we should still, contra Nancy, still impeach Donald fucking Trump who I regard as worthy of impeachment, <laughs> of impeachment yeah, and, and I, nothing I would, else. I, yeah, I, and I would just add to that that you can't set a precedent of someone breaking this flagrantly breaking the law for two, you know, for two straight years, and then say, "Oh, because it's not politically expedient for us, we should give him a fucking pass." No, you you impeach him because there's a moral obligation and a legal obligation to do so. Can we just say that even if Donald Trump hadn't broken a single law? Someone who is so emotionally unstable, someone who is so petty and vindictive is not qualified to have the nuclear football following him around his tennis or his golf course clubs. He should be impeached in the absence of crime. He's just unfit for the office. Yeah. Mm. Or people should dust off the 13th Amendment. I mean, this is what we've been talking about. The 25th Amendment. Is it? Which one is the removal? The 25th. 25th, Sorry. This but whatever's is, in the 13th, dust that one up, too. Let's have all the amendments. I, I believe that's the one that gives black people the right to vote. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's dust that one off. Well, that, that one actually is being dusting off. Yeah. Uh, but so people have been 
wishing that Trump's cabinet would step in, that Republicans would step in. It hasn't happened for two years. And now Nancy Pelosi, through her statement, not only said she doesn't think impeachment is worth it or Donald Trump is not worth it and the whole thing is too divisive, but she added this other bar that you now have to clear, which is that we can't do it unless it's bipartisan. So something has to come out that's like so overwhelmingly clearly wrong that the Republicans who have protected Donald Trump for the last two years when all kinds of things have tumbled out that should be clearly wrong, uh, that re- that those Republicans now get on board and say, yes, we're going to join hands with Democrats and launch an impeachment proceeding. And that is bullshit. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. it's not going to happen. It's essentially handing Republicans a veto over whether Democrats start to impeach. At least for now. I mean, I don't – Nancy Pelosi is such a 14th dimensional chess player. Nancy Pelosi is better at this than any of the three of us are. Uh, none, of, none of us have been in Congress. She has achieved so much in that position and I don't believe that Nancy Pelosi is naive and Nancy Pelosi plays long games and also short long games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that she has ruled out impeachment. I don't think she's ruled anything out ever. And Here's she's a killer. Here's the story that I am telling myself in that vein to like comfort myself and and convince myself that she's actually playing 14-dimensional chess here. So she and others have pointed out there's something like 60 Democrats in the House who are in districts where it is not politically tenable to be talking about impeachment all the time or even to be going through an impeachment kind of fishing expedition or or anything that could be characterized as such. So she needs to protect that part of the Democratic majority so Democrats keep the House. And if she needs to say, I'm not open to impeachment... Like, wait, 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 wait. So, Does that mean she wants to keep the House so that after Donald Trump is reelected in 2020, then we can impeach the president? I'm know. hoping we aren't reelecting the president no, in 2020. So that, so that Democrats have the House and the Senate and the presidency after 2020, which would allow people to undo a lot of what's been done over the last four years and actually move forward on things like, say, climate change. But so she's protecting those Democrats and giving them room to run and cover. And she's also not saying that the committees can't still investigate Donald Trump. And so she's greenlighting in a way this slow, methodical investigation that can't be seen as a foregone conclusion with, you know, having a foregone conclusion of impeachment because there's Nancy Pelosi saying, no, we're not going to impeach unless – And now they're looking into whether there's an unless. And that slowly, day after day, month after month, hopefully continues to uh, disrobe for those who haven't been able to see the truth, this emperor with no clothes. My only worry about that is that they're building this sort of like break glass in case of emergency impeachment situation where they will gather all the evidence and then Trump will win in 2020 and then right after that we'll be like oh look we're going to impeach him you know <laughs> uh, again we've got all of this stuff that we've been gathering for you know two years yeah we've been sitting on it but you, but know. you know my head will explode if this happens and this is I think likely to happen in that scenario yeah they gather all the evidence they hold all the hearings Trump somehow manages to get re-fucking-elected mm-hmm. and then they say well you know we you know we could impeach him but that would imperil the chances of these vulnerable Democrats in 2022. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we can't impeach him because exactly. there's always a House 
race coming up. Right. Every, Every two, two years. years. <laughs> and what Dems do, Republicans get majorities and then they wear them out. And then they lose the majorities after they've locked into place right-wing bullshit policies that then it's impossible to undo. Democrats get majorities and then do nothing for fear of losing their majority. Mm -hmm. You are always going to lose your majority in the end. You have to push through your policies while you have your majority. And so this argument, okay, we could do this and save the planet and save the country and save the world and allow everyone to sleep at night. But then we might risk our imperiling our majority, and there's this vulnerable Democrat in Nebraska. Uh, yeah, like, well, you, oh my god, that makes my blood walked, boil. Yeah, which has walked you all the way around the circle to impeach him tomorrow. Impeach yeah. motherfucker already <laughs> is my slogan. <laughs> what part of already don't you understand, Eli Sanders? <laughs> all right, let's talk about another huge story that came out this week: the college admissions cheating scandal. My take on this is it's not surprising that people cheat to get into college and it's not surprising that eventually they get busted on it. But this has resonance because of how much privileged, wealthy people in this culture and country get away with all the time by buying their way into this or that or buying their way out of trouble. Greatest example is President Trump, who we were just talking about, and his family, Jared Kushner, got into Harvard after his dad, a convicted felon, made a like, $2.5 million donation. Right. And so And that was legal. Right. All but, but you know, but, bribed his way in. But Felicity Huffman gets to go to jail for some other reason. Jared Kushner's <laughs> daddy went to jail thanks to Chris Christie, which is why Jared Kushner put the knife in Chris Christie's back. But there's a way that you bribe your way, you bribe your kid's way into college, and there's a way you don't bribe your kid's way into college. Faking water polo photos, having somebody else take the SATs for them, bribing uh, coaches at colleges. That's the thing that made my head explode. There were mm -hmm. these coaches at USC and other – Yale, other places – Giving, bringing, recruiting the sons and daughters of these famous people for their teams, even though they weren't athletes and were never going to play for them. Right. Which is robbing an athlete of a spot at the college and also effectively robbing a deserving person who's probably not rich, who did better on their SATs or whatever, and now doesn't get in because Felicity Huffman's daughter needed to, like, take this fraudulent side right. there's, door there's a popular idea um that affirmative action is the reason why mediocre white people can't get into college and this story <laughs> i think struck a nerve right because it's like well there's this other reason which is that uh every rich person is constantly trying to you know uh get their little um baby who vlogger who doesn't want to actually go to college into school because it will uh you know increase their cultural cachet among the brunch crowd or whatever so this is affirmative and not action just into school into an elite school right which is such bullshit. Where did you get your degree? University of Missouri. University of Illinois. Columbia University. You elite motherfucking you piece of shit. I here. knew this would eventually yeah. come around to that. But out there in the, what did your parents, you know, the, who took the SAT? Right. Who bribed who for that? To I want to see your photoshopped water polo pictures. Legacy. But, but but out here in the real world, you know, everyone is so hyper about getting their so many people upper 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 middle class and wealthy parents hyper about getting their kids into elite schools. But in reality, you know, nobody really talks about uh, – Mike Peskin made a great point on his podcast. Nobody really talks about where you went to school. They talk about whether you went to school. You talk about whether you have a degree. And unless it's from Phoenix or the Art Institute of Seattle, nobody really cares <laughs> where it's from, mm -hmm. just that you have it. And so this competition to get into the one and only Harvard – my uh, plots on Slate's Gap is always saying Harvard should open another Harvard. They have enough money to open a second <laughs> yeah. Harvard and make Harvard educations more available to, to, to more students. But 
this competition just seems insane. Yeah. This, it's, a, it's a status symbol thing and not necessarily about whether your kid is going to have a successful career or life. That's true, but it's also true that in the New York, D.C. world especially and in the elite echelons of American society and government, though, dropping those names and actually being able to prove that you went to Harvard instead of lying about it, as a lot of people do, does get you in the door. Yeah, it last week, wasn't there some controversy about some uh, New York editor saying that they um, basically just take anybody who's a Yale grad because the, you know, that, that that's... The, yeah, and that happens all the time, yeah. which is why these people want to just, just get the kid in. Like, if they fail, you know, mostly as long as they get in and they graduate, they'll say they went to Yale and then they think... And there's some reason to think this, that they are assumed a certain station in life George, just because of that. George W. Bush, for instance, may, yeah. have, may have succeeded uh, And in now life. I feel the need to say, like, I, I went to Seattle Public Schools and found <laughs> my way into, yes, an elite university where I was with all these people who had gone to Andover and Exeter and had the parents who bought, you know, uh, names on the top of buildings and whatever and... Uh, people are not wrong about what they say about elite universities, but I did not bribe my way in. It particularly sucks being in the class with those kids because you know that they just don't even – like you are working so hard to just to be there in that class and to try to succeed and you're there because you absolutely need to or else you're going to be on the fucking street. And then these people are sitting right next to you getting the same amount of teacher attention, getting the same amount of time, the same amount of resources and in more cases – in some cases more just – and they don't even care that it doesn't even matter to them. It just it's it's just a kind of social thing that's happening in their lives. And I have a so slightly I, re I resent that. I think there's truth to that. And then I also uh, really relate to what has been said about this scam mm -hmm. robbing people of places because yeah. it is actually quite an empowering thing. And I saw this, you know, at my elite university to come in not through the Andovers and Exeters and fancy uh, privileged roots of the world. But through, uh, you know, roots that were harder than my own mm -hmm. and stand toe to toe with all these people who came in with tremendous advantage, not just wealth, but they had great educations mm -hmm. before they got to this great education. Mm -hmm. And for people to be able to get into these elite universities and see themselves as intellectually as capable or co-equal with, you know, the elite of the elite mm -hmm. is great. It mm -hmm. creates this really uh Inflated Great. sense of your own person. No, it puts people on a path to yeah. actually making a difference in this world who are not uh, frequently allowed onto that path or allowed to see that they have every right and ability to be on that path. And so the robbing people of that chance is is really uh fucking awful i think that's a great point i'm sorry for deflating taking the wind out of your sails a little bit earlier with my tasteless joke that's I, all right i kept quiet while i made that point because i just wanted somebody who has a columbia education to school me <laughs> on it <laughs> next we will talk about harvard law professor who got her degree her bachelor's at the university of houston nice elizabeth warren rich you would never spend fifty dollars on a t-shirt not if I didn't know that it was responsibly sourced, Eli. <laughs> Even if you knew it was responsibly sourced, oh, you might enough. not. Fair enough, yeah. No. And conveniently, with Everlane, you don't have to make that kind of terrible choice. Nice t-shirts only actually cost about $7 to make, and Everlane tells you that, and 
sells them to you for less than 50 bucks for sure. You never overpay for quality clothes at Everlane, even though the company only makes your stuff from premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why, so they tell you their real costs and are radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. That's right. Pay workers to make the clothes that keep me warm. And let you buy those clothes for cheap. That's right. That's Everlane. In 2018, they made a commitment to eliminate all virgin plastic from their supply chain by 2021. And it's happening. Rich and I walk in every day in coats made from virgin plastic. No, no, not from virgin plastic. From experienced plastic. I only want my coat made from the virgin plastic. Well, that's bad for the environment. We're doing experienced from now on. Thanks to Everlane. Everlane. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Essentials, like their Cotton Crew t-shirt, are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. I'm wearing one right now. It looks great. It does look great. Thanks. And it wasn't $50. That's right. I know how much uh, it was, and I know who uh, made it. Thanks, Everlane. Right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Dress like rich. That's right. Or worse, dress like me. You dress the same. <laughs> Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Everlane.com slash blabbermouth. Rich Smith, hello. Hey, Eli. How are you? I'm doing well. And Chase Burns is here also. Hello. That means we're talking about the internets, which turned <laughs> 30 this week. Oh. Yeah. Happy- I'm not 30. Yeah, you are younger than the internet. Rich, are you? Where are you in this? I'm three years older than the internet. Ah. I am a few more than three years older than the <laughs> internet. <laughs> so 36. Exactly. 32, 36. Um, so the internet, which uh, yeah, just celebrated this big birthday, gave us Facebook, which Elizabeth Warren, presidential candidate, wants to take from us, or at least take apart. She is out there talking about trust-busting Facebook, breaking up big tech. Rich, you read her online uh, screed, or what's a better word for screed? Her uh, manifesto, manifesto. A, 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 or a sensible policy proposal <laughs> would, would also work you go. for the 21st century. Yeah, um, you know, I was uh, impressed with, uh, with with Warren's proposal. Uh, she's uh, basically telling us uh, what 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 we all should know, but is kind of uh, uh, cloaked um, because. Um, these things are always kind of cloaked. Uh, tech companies are the big tech companies: Fang, Facebook, Amazon, um, Alphabet, Google, and uh, Apple. And am I missing one? Well, what was N for? I don't know Fang? why, but that's what they call them. They call them the Fang tech companies, Netflix, or the Big Four. Or the Big Four. Anyway, the Big Four tech companies are essentially monopolies, right? Google has a monopoly on knowledge and search. Amazon has a monopoly on e-commerce. Facebook wants to have a monopoly on media and is getting damn near close. And um, Netflix is the N and Fang. Oh, also okay. kind of has a monopoly over your video streaming. 
That makes sense, right? Along with Apple, which wants to control all entertainment, and Elizabeth Warren is saying,、um, you know, these companies have gotten way too big, and instead of encouraging competition, the market has, over the last the course of the last thirty years, due to、uh, lax antitrust laws, encouraged mono- these monopolies from forming. Unlike what the Chicago School of Economics professors thought,、um, the market isn't. Self-correcting and making sure that these monopolies break themselves up.、Um, in fact, they're growing、uh, much bigger. This is hurting competition, so the government needs to go in there and break them up. And there is actually precedent in American history. None of us really remember it because we weren't alive. Most of us or all of us、uh, for this, but. Big monopolies have been broken up before. Absolutely, in the twenties, there was a, a you know from the nineteen hundreds to the nineteen twenties, there was a big、uh, movement、uh, to break up the, the the barons of industry.、Um, it was、uh, we passed the Sherman Act so that we could prosecute monopolies、um, uh, from happening. Then there was kind of a lull in the thirties. In the forties, we through the seventies, we thought that monopolies were fascistic. World War Two had just ended, and we thought that you know industry control over a single sec- sector was like、uh, Hitler. But then the seventies came along. The boomers got into power, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and laissez-faire uh, economics uh, uh, t- took over, and、um, we didn't prosecute. I think the last. Vertical integration we prosecuted was in 1979.、Um, the last horizontal was M- Microsoft,、um, from who were trying to、uh, basically make sure every computer had a Internet Explorer browser instead of a Netscape browser. We we broke that up, but we haven't really started. We haven't been breaking up, you know,、uh, big companies.、Um, For the last thirty years, and so let's sit back for a moment and setting all that history and all the fancy terms like vertical integration and so on aside, <laughs> let's just reflect on how pervasive Facebook has become in our life. Facebook's not the only company that Elizabeth Warren wants to break up, but it's the biggest example. Yeah, and what、uh, what Warren was talking about was how these companies have often used mergers to limit competition, and so in Facebook's case. They've taken、uh, WhatsApp, they've taken Instagram, and they've taken the their kind of prime competition, and they've been allowed to integrate it into their company. And so now they've they're in a place where we're, I mean, as consumers, we're kind of unable to step away. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. Or to put it in a different way, if you want to go online and talk to your friends on social media, your choice is Facebook or. Facebook, yeah, Twitter Or, is, yeah. you know, sort of does it, but in a very different way. There's nothing that does what Facebook does、uh, and offers a competitor to Facebook. Yeah, I believe they they、uh, it's I think it's Facebook and Google that has something like seventy percent of the web traffic, and so they take a huge amount of what we do on the internet, and、uh, that is has a lot of consequences. So one consequence, which really illustrated the problem that Elizabeth Warren was talking about this week, is that Facebook controls what you can and cannot say on Facebook because Facebook is a private company. I will give my ten-second rant once again <laughs> about how Facebook tries to use the concept of free speech to its advantage when it suits Facebook's interests. And tries to get you, the listener and user, all riled up about. I need to be able to post what I want on Facebook because it's my free speech right. No, it's not. You don't have free speech on Facebook, which is a privately held company that has the right to control what's said or not said on its platform. And when that company 
becomes so big that it has billions of users all over the world, it effectively controls what can and cannot be said. In other words, it becomes a speech censor. And that is exactly what Facebook did with Elizabeth Warren's attempt at buying some Facebook ads to talk about how Facebook needed to be broken up. Facebook went and took down Elizabeth Warren's ads, essentially silenced her attempt to pay for some speech on Facebook to tell people, hey, I got this idea to break up Facebook. Yeah, they said that it violated their use of uh, using their corporate logo and that they were restoring them, but it was a big debacle. Right. And the way it became a debacle was that someone happened to notice. So it could have been that no one ever noticed. The Warren campaign hadn't noticed this. And you can then imagine how many times, how many maybe thousands of times a day this happens, given Facebook's billions of users, where the company quietly deletes something and you just don't know. And maybe you would profoundly disagree if you knew uh, about every one of these deletions. But this one came to light because of Facebook's uh, policy of sharing some information about political ads. The digital publication Politico noticed in Facebook's online ad archive that Warren's online ads had been taken down or uh, masked. And so they sounded the alarm and then... When Politico reported that Facebook had deleted Warren's ads, Facebook went and said, oh, no, okay, we'll change this, which is to jump onto another issue quickly, a perfect example of how Facebook outsources its content moderation problem to you and me and everyone we know, and especially journalists who don't get paid by Facebook to police Facebook but spend a lot of their time policing Facebook. Well, knowing full well that we don't really understand these technologies. I mean, these uh, these evolved rapidly in ways that the normal consumer, the normal lawmaker had had no idea how to use. I mean, we've had whole media companies that have invested in positions just so we can learn how to use these platforms. And so we need to increase our education around these platforms. But it's how do we do that? It's so hard to know what's going on inside. For the average person, just to step back to Warren's plan to cut Facebook down to size, she's not going to like, she's not going to, as they say, delete Facebook's account or delete Facebook. They, They would still exist, but in smaller form. So what might the world that Warren envisions actually look like? Well, she says that you would be able to really use these platforms in the same way as a consumer. Um, what she would do is that she was go- she would break up a lot of these mergers first off. So she would break up like Amazon, one of like it's Whole Foods merger they would look at. It's Zappos merger they would look at. With Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram and Google Waze and uh, DoubleClick. And so those mergers she would definitely look at. And then also with labeling things as something she calls platform utilities, which is a bit of a vague term. But it's any uh, companies with an annual global revenue of $25 billion or more. Um, so that would be like Amazon Marketplace, Google Ads Exchange. They would have some new regulations uh they would have to they couldn't own them the platform utility as she says well it was it's they they would basically uh separate instagram from facebook let's say and then make sure that facebook could never buy an instagram again like you know yeah like but the idea of a platform as a utility so she's saying what has been said by a lot of people that these companies have become effectively so big that they are utilities they are and so um necessary to our modern life and Mm -hmm. pervasive that they are like the electric company or 
in a better analogy, like the railroads, which yeah. were built uh, often by private interests and then became effectively regulated like utilities. Yeah, and in, you know, some countries have nationalized these sorts of things. She's not advocating for that. She just wants to break it up, add new uh, uh, regulations, uh, and it would, yeah. Right. This is this whole thing is is Elizabeth Warren wanting capitalism to work better. Right. She sees the the same inequality that we all see in our daily financial and personal lives. She sees in the business world. It's important to to note. Um, you know, monopolies are bad for market competition. She's trying to increase competition. Though it feels like we've had all of these startups and small businesses happening in the last ten years. Um, you know, actually, um, small firms used to be fifty percent of the business community. Now they're a third of the business community. All kinds of other markers that would suggest that we have a healthy competitive marketplace are uh, uh, are suggesting just the opposite, that the kind of inequality we're having um, in our lives is reflected in, in the business world. And so she's trying to find a, um, a bring back some healthy regulation. I think probably we should just take over the <laughs> Facebook and, and Amazon and, uh, and Google and uh, make them uh, public utility, true public utilities. Um, uh, but, you know, th- this, is, this is her one step to the, to the right in the already, you know, to far the left. left. Oh, I well, see. It's, it's one step to the right of my She's one step dream. to the right of yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So does that make you like Warren better, bottom line? Because I don't think Warren was at the top of your list. I don't know. I mean, I I think it's a smart policy proposal. I think that it's um, great that we're having um, this discussion about how to better uh, regulate markets. I wonder if anybody's going to give a shit. Whenever I think of antitrust law, I think she's being smart about the language she's using. She's not kind of evoking, uh, you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt bang- banging against um, a, a building with a giant stick or whatever it is that people think of whenever they think of antitrust, because that's what I uh, think of. But, um, but I conservatives and anybody who cares who says that they love the free market should be fucking flipping their shit about this This is exactly what they want you know um and uh and and if they so it it should have some crossover appeal but it probably won't because uh, chase do you like warren better for this i mean i do i remember it was the first time in in recent months or even maybe a year that i've been like you know what you know, this is go Warren. Um, <laughs> I don't. I'm not hopeful that she's going to make it insanely far, uh, or even definitely get the nomination. Were she to, I would. I would vote for. Her. I am excited that she is introducing this. I think it's really important, and I think it was written in a way that could be read semi easily. Some of it's a bit hairy to get through, mm-hmm. um, and that's necessary. And so I'm so relieved that she's doing that, and I'm excited to see where she goes in the next handful of years. There's going to be a lot of interesting major ideas on the Democratic debate stage. You've got Elizabeth Warren wanting to break up Facebook. You've got Andrew Yang, who is now in the first Democratic (laughs) debate. He wants, uh, what what do they call it? Universal Basic Income. UBI. No one in America makes anything less than uh, whatever the many thousands of dollars that Yang would give everyone a month. He would give you $1,000 a month, everyone in the country, regardless of income. Paris Hilton and Eli Sanders, $1,000 a month. (laughs) Kamala Harris wants reparations. I mean, the list goes on. We're going to be talking about some really interesting big ideas in the Democratic debate, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it's exciting to me. And Jay Inslee is going to be talking about (laughs) climate change, my president. That's right. (laughs) Chase, thank you. Thank you. Rich, thank you. Thanks. Jasmine Kymig, hello. Hi, Eli. 
Dan Savage. Hello, Hello. still and always. <laughs> we neglected last week to talk about the Michael Jackson documentary because honestly, it was kind of painful and it also took us a long time to get to it, get through it. It's all four hours of it. Yeah, I actually still have 45 minutes left on it. Um, <laughs> it's called Leaving Neverland and it is rough. Yes, it is. So it's an HBO documentary. So anyone with an HBO subscription can watch it. Um, it's directed by a British director, Dan Reed, and it um, features the stories of Wade Robson and J- uh, James Safechuck. Um, and they're both men in their 30s now. And uh, they allege that, you know, Michael Jackson sexually abused them for 20 years. Uh, Wade Robson was five years old when he first met M- Michael. Uh, and the sexual abuse started, um, when he was seven, he was a dancer. He was from Australia. Um, he moved his entire, well, his mother and his sister both moved to the Los Angeles to, to be closer to Michael Jackson. Um, and then James met MJ through a Pepsi commercial, I think. That he he was was in when he was 10 years old. Yeah, when he was 10. And he ended up, uh, being a dancer in, uh, I think it was his bad tour or dangerous. And going all over the world with him and staying in his room with him. Right. And so I think the documentary is is less about, I mean, everyone n- knew that these allegations existed. Uh, but to me, the documentary was a really kind of in-depth study about, you know, how this happened and how child abuse works and um, in the sense of like ha- how it happens, how Michael Jackson's celebrity really helped it happen. This may seem like an odd question to ask first, but I want to ask it first because there are so many questions that swirl around this and, and I don't want to lose it in the conversation of the other ones. How is this as a documentary? It's riveting. I think um, so, yeah. It's very simple. Uh, they don't use a lot of archival footage. They don't do a recap of Michael Jackson's career they assume what can be assumed we all know who michael jackson is or was and we're familiar with his work and it's just interviews with uh the two men that i think you can say michael jackson or i feel safe saying having watched the documentary michael jackson abused Mm -hmm. um, and their families recounting their entire association with michael jackson and if they are all lying siblings parents uh and these two men they are the best actors, all three of them, on the planet. Uh, they were interviewed separately, and their stories are in alignment and, and with what we know about serial child sexual abusers. They have an MO. They have a pattern. Um, they have grooming techniques that they apply from child to child to child and also activities that they engage in, child to child to child. And it just... It's hard to assail their credibility. It's hard to really pick apart their stories, except as the Jackson estate is doing to accuse them of having sought damages. Well, people who've been abused, people who've been violated, seek damages in our culture. It's one of the ways that people seek justice and are made to feel whole. Uh, and, and so I don't think that they can be faulted if they were violated. And I think that they were. I believe that they were. Yeah. Ever I, I believe them. I believe them 100%. And it it angers me so much, you know, like I think I came out saying like, fuck Michael Jackson, <laughs> you know, and, and it's really hard not to. Um, and there's moments in this film that just 
really pin you down because what they're saying, and, and one of the reasons they are so damaged by their interactions with Jackson is that they loved him. They did. Mm-hmm. They talk about being in love with Michael Jackson still, and that those complicated feelings of complicity, but also affection, uh, really is often what puts the ultimate zap on a, an abused child's head. That it's not just, I was violently raped and this was monstrous and I recoiled from it all my life. It's that this was a relationship. They benefited, uh, particularly Wade Robson benefited professionally and socially from the relationship. Yeah, he's a choreographer for NSYNC and Britney Spears on like their kind of peak. Hmm. Yeah, a- And they still speak of Jackson and their time with Jackson with conflicted emotions and conflicted feelings about their affections for him. And that's one of the things that makes watching this so devastating is you really do get inside the mind of a child who was failed by parents and abused and groomed and is still impacted and reeling from that grooming process and that abuse to this day. And although there's absolutely no comparison, there is some overlap. And I would imagine that's where some of the pinning down feeling comes from to the relationship that, you know, mass culture in America has with Michael Jackson. Yeah. Love for him and also disgust at what uh, it's now more and more clear that he did. Yeah, because they also interviewed um, they interviewed both of their mothers. And so hearing what how the mothers kind of justified leaving their kid alone in a bedroom with Michael Jackson. And there's been right? a lot of like attempts to pin all of the blame and responsibility no. onto the mothers. The mothers were groomed as well. The mothers should have known better. The mothers were the adults in the room. The mothers were should have protected their child and the fathers. They, they, there's a father who's present for a lot of this and nobody's talking about his yeah. responsibility, which I think is really telling. I, I think they, they all kind of speak to how Michael, like this kind of idea of celebrity just stuns you. Right. Where they they talk about, you know, Michael was immediately family with them. Right. And so, of course, you know, she didn't think that, you know, he would do anything to. And with the mothers, he kind of groomed them to regard him as a child of theirs as well. Yes. Um, He would become very emotionally reliant on them. He spent a lot of time in one of their sort of modest middle income homes in Los Angeles. He would flee there from his mansions and world tours and spend the night and do his own laundry. And that was part of the grooming process with the parents was if you see – if you, he can get you to see him as a child of yours as well, well, letting your two children spend the night together in a hotel room, that's what parents of siblings often do when they travel with their kids. But when you talk about like what we saw, there's a terrific piece at Slate um, by Sam Adams. Michael Jackson jokes kept the allegations alive and helped us laugh them off. And it walks you through – decades of sort of pop culture uh, and, you know, SNL and In Living Color and how we all joked about what we could see and and we knew for a fact had to be going on and we laughed it off. It's a really important piece that pins the blame not just on the parents but also on the culture in each of us who participated in that culture even as an audience, not just of Michael Jackson's but an audience of uh, shows like SNL that were processing what was happening in plain sight and getting us to just laugh it off well it was it was it was crazy just seeing photos of how many young children that he was with on his tour like in his limos um and at hanging photo- on them yeah. holding their hands it's like how how did this like of course this was happening well we have an amazing capacity for cognitive dissonance i right. mean we have a president who is clearly uh, a sexual predator an admit admitted sexual predator and unfit 
to be president, and yet we all get up and go on with our day, and we laugh it off. We turn it into a joke, and there are a lot of enablers and people who are complicit because they benefit financially and otherwise from it. So not not the first time, but to get back to Michael Jackson, the question then becomes and not again not to trivialize the questions that haunt the victims here far more profoundly than any of us but for us what do we do with this i mean especially if we were or maybe still are fans of michael jackson's music yeah i mean i would describe myself as someone who is a was a huge mj fan was a huge mj fan um but i mean i can't i don't have all the answers <laughs> about how we deal with it necessarily. But I know that for me personally, I mean, it completely changed my relationship with him. And I, I have no desire to, to listen to his music in the same way anymore. It's kind of like, for me, the Woody Allen situation, you know, like, okay, Annie Hall was fine. I liked Midnight in Paris. But I mean, I think that his legacy and, you know, his allegations of sexual abuse, I think they kind of outweigh me and you know, enjoying a film of his. That's just me. Where are you on this one, Dan? Well, I haven't enjoyed pop music for 50 <laughs> years, so <laughs> nothing has been taken from me. Uh-huh. But this question that comes up over and over, I mean, you could, Woody Allen, Michael Jackson, you can go all over the map. Um, right. Bernini. Pablo, often, Pablo when, Picasso. When people talk like, about Picasso, they talk about Woody Allen. Now we talk about Michael Jackson. I often think of Bernini, who is the a, a Renaissance sculptor, did amazing work. You go to Rome and you travel to certain like obscure churches just to see a single Bernini. Um, Bernini sent a servant to his mistress's house with a razor to slash open her face. Um, and she, he did. The servant did that. The servant was convicted. Bernini was excused by the Pope because he was mad at his mistress um, and disfigured her. Uh, and she survived the attack. But what do we do with all those beautiful Bernini statues we all travel to see? Uh, and what do we do? What do we do? Like the, the history of the world involves a lot of shitty people doing a lot of shitty things. Some of those shitty people were creators who were doing shitty things and made can't let people off the hook. And, and we're wrestling with this. Like right yeah. now, like Louis CK's entire production of all every TV show he's ever made has been disappeared. Mm -hmm. You can't watch it. A lot of those shows were really smart. Some of them were smart about things that he was awful about. Yeah. And maybe that was part of his public persona meant to shield and and divert attention away from his own actions. What do we do with that art? Mm -hmm. And also the the further complexity, horrible people who made art that actually achieved great things. You can say, and I don't think this is any sort of stretch, that Michael Jackson gave the world a tremendous amount and did a lot through his music but he also he abused it too yes. you know and then like, he used our uh, the, everyone else's i could give a shit affection <laughs> for him <laughs> and, and appreciation of his music not just to get away with his crimes but really in a way to admit to his crimes you look at those videos of him hanging on little boys yeah. like lovers hang on each other um somebody i think in the film or one of the comments i heard about it was at the end of the video bad he reveals himself to be a monster, actually. Oh. Like, at the end of the video, he looks at the camera and he actually is the monster. Michael Jackson was telling us over and over and over again in his mm. music that he was a bad guy. Oh, the, that, that was, was in the Thriller. Monster. Yeah, in Thriller. Yeah, in Thriller. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so maybe that's... Yeah, and you look at Woody Allen. Like, how many movies does a, a, a middle-aged man have to make about fucking 15-year-old girls or falling in love with teenagers before we go, hey, maybe that guy's fucking teenagers. 
Uh, not that Woody <laughs> Allen has ever been accused of anything other than the horrible things that we know to him have done um, and, and the accusation about his daughter. He didn't prey on a series of uh, teenagers, Sunni Previn and the allegations about Dylan. Uh, but still, blah. Yeah. Well, I had a small hope, but mostly doubt that we would solve this ongoing kind of <laughs> yeah, timeless problem is, of, yeah, of no. the separation or non-separation did of you the like art and the Michael artist. Jackson's music? Can I ask real quick? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, um, my grandma was a blues singer. Uh, I mean, we li- I listened to him all the time. You know, I taught English abroad and I would use Michael Jackson's videos as a way to like, English is fun. Like, let's dance, you know, with my my third graders, because I thought that he was a really good emblem for like, this is American culture. This is something that, you know, is pervasive throughout the world. And, and you like, couldn't do that now. No, I, I would feel I wouldn't do it. I, I, I don't think I could feel good doing it. have to it. go with R. Kelly now or someone else. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, R. <laughs> Kelly. Fuck R. Kelly. Yes, fuck R. Kelly. Fuck your faves. You know, fuck R. Kelly. All right. Jasmine, thank you. No problem. Dan, thank you. Thank you. And that's the show. Quick correction about something that was said earlier in the show by me. The 13th Amendment is not what I said it was. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 15th Amendment gave African Americans the right to vote. The 25th Amendment is the one that you use if you're trying to remove an unfit president from office. If you've got something you want to say to me about that or about how my fancy education led me to not even be able to cite the Constitution correctly, call the blabber phone where you can also reach rich dan jasmine or chase it's 206-302-2063 or dive on into our blabbermouth podcast facebook group i expect to see you all there this week thanks as always to ahamefile j alua for making the music we use on the show each week and to nancy hartunian for bringing our blabbering mouths to your ears 